Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening uh, to take a look at Theology of the Body. And it is January 1st, 2015, so I wish all of you listeners out there a happy Succular New Year, huh? Uh, And how fitting is it that, uh, once again, we have the privilege to talk about theology of the body on such an important day. You know, last week, we talked about theology of the body on Christmas Day, and I made the point that, you know, Christmas Day uh, is about the Incarnation, and, and what does... Uh, the Incarnation reveal God's love. Uh, He gives us His Son, and in doing so, He reveals to us the full meaning of man. Uh, Just not body, but body and soul. Just not flesh, but flesh and spirit. He descends so we might ascend. And I tell you what, as we talked about the Incarnation, it really allowed us to focus in on this great topic of love that we've talked about so much here on this radio program. And when you talk about God's love, you're talking about that which is absolute, that which is unchanging, huh? What do I mean when I say that? Well, there's no one thing so great that we can do that is going to make God love us more. There's no one thing so bad, so tragic, that is going to have God loving us any less, okay? When we understand God's love, we understand that that absolute and unchanging love is sacrificial, and it reveals to us how we are called to love, that essentially we do not allow other people's weaknesses to dictate how we love. This is what the Incarnation reveals to us. So we put that last week into the context of theology of the body, how eros points us to agape, which collectively is going to be the essence of what we talk about this evening. And so it is, we have another holiday, uh, maybe less significant, uh, New Year's Day, uh, but something to consider. Um, You know, when you talk about the new year, it's not about the parties, it's not about the the celebrations per se. Yes, uh, it is good to gather around the table and to be able to share in that interpersonal communion as a family and with friends, for sure. Uh, but as G.K. Chesterton once said, the new year uh, is is at its best when it reminds us we need to be renewed in our relationship with God, because the new year is about the new soul. And so G.K. Chesterton wants us thinking about this whole idea of what is new in our soul. And uh, in light of that, again, what better subject matter to be talking about, huh? What better subject matter to be talking about than that which is love? Now, all of that being said, we are in 
uh, Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, right? Uh, we've wrapped up chapter four. Now, what's interesting, for those of you who have your book out there, you're well aware of this, but in this book, there are nine chapters. We just finished chapter four, uh, The Meaning of True Eros. If you were to look at this structurally, what you'll find is in the first four chapters, they are chapters that point in many ways to chapter five, okay? We have taken up uh, chapter one, encountering God, who is love. Chapter two, distinguishing true love from its counterfeits. Chapter three, the unity of body and soul. And again, chapter four, true eros. This evening, we're going to set out to begin to study the meeting of eros and agape. And what happens is out from this chapter, uh, we have four subsequent chapters that really have us going back to chapter five. So chapter five, in many ways, is the epicenter of this book, sitting right in the middle, huh? With one to four pointing to five and six to nine back to five. And so certainly our subject matter for this evening and uh, the next few weeks, the meeting of Eros and Agape is very important. Very important. Okay, now, with that, what do we have in chapter 5 that is so important? Well, Christopher West goes back to Benedict's work. And again, for those of you who might be listening for the first time, this work, The Love That Satisfies, is a reflection and a theological commentary on Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's encyclical, God is Love, where in the first half, he reflects upon the meaning of eros and agape. Again, eros is that human erotic love and agape, divine sacrificial love. So this is what this book is about. And uh, you can well imagine that a chapter entitled The Meeting of Eros and Agape uh, is very important. And so to get us going here, these are the words of Benedict XVI. If the distinction between eros and agape were to be taken to extremes, the essence of Christianity would be detached from the vital relations fundamental to human existence and would become decisively cut off from the complex fabric of human life. So what's going on here? Benedict XVI speaks of the interconnection between the essence of Christianity and those vital relations fundamental to human existence. My dear friends, he's speaking to sexual relations, right? He says that this interconnection depends upon the proper interconnection of what? Eros, human love, and agape, divine love. How can we best understand this? Well, let us remember what we talked about in some of our opening weeks, that at the essence of Christianity, we discover what? The mystery of the Trinitarian God. Three divine persons who live a perfect, as Christopher West likes to say, unity in distinction, right? You have that eternal, perfect exchange of love between the Father and the Son, and ultimately this love is the Holy Spirit. This means that each divine person is fully unified with the others in the one divine light. Yet, each divine person is distinct from the others. 
This is why we say that the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each distinct person is fully God, not partially God, but there are not three gods. The three distinct persons are one God. Now, I know for some of us who are listening, you might have your head on a swivel right now, okay? A great number of theologians uh, have been trying to unpack this great mystery, and uh, while they have done well to use images and illustrations, we're always going to be left with some mystery, huh? I'm thinking of uh, St. Patrick. It is uh, well known, huh, that during the time of St. Patrick's instruction, he would like to use a shamrock to visualize the mystery of the Trinity, huh? How a single plant with three leaves is analogous to the one triune God with three separate and distinct persons. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, would also use illustrations and, and images and, and analogies. In the end, what we are made to see is that while this is some dense theology, it is also the central mystery of Christian faith and life. Why? Because it reveals God's love. Remember what I talked about last week in that great Christological hymn, you know, Jesus did not deem equality uh, with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, and he was obedient unto the cross, unto death, death on a cross, right? In that great hymn, what we have is a hymn to sacrificial sonship, huh? We have a profound insight into the life of the Trinity, where the Son surrenders himself to the Father, and in doing so, reveals to us the icon of agape, the icon of sacrificial love in the cross. So it is the mystery of God in himself. It is therefore the source of all other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them, as the Catechism says in paragraph 234. And it, it enlightens all other mysteries because of the wonder and the beauty of this interpersonal communion of love. Uh, we can uh, maybe illustrate how one enlightens the other when you start talking about the Incarnation. The uh, Catechism draws out that the unique and altogether singular event of the Incarnation of the Son of God does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man, nor does it imply that he is the result of some sort of confused mixture of the divine and the human. Rather, what the Christian faith tells us and what is revealed is that the second person of the Trinity became truly man while remaining truly God. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. His divine and human natures are perfectly united, we could say, without blurring their distinction. So what Benedict XVI then teaches us about the proper relationship between eros, that human love, and agape, uh, divine love, is deeply rooted in the mystery of the incarnation, right? This is what I talked about in the opening. And in turn, the Trinity. Eros, though, is distinct from agape. We could say just as the human nature in Christ is distinct from the divine, 
Furthermore, just as the human and the divine natures in Christ are profoundly and indissolubly united, so are erotic and divine love. And that's the wonder of the great mystery in how we can begin to understand this in light of the Trinity. Indeed, (laughs) the proper unity of eros and agape flows precisely from the mystery of the Incarnation, in which the human and divine meet in an embrace that never ends. I mean, that's the gift that we are given. Remember, when Christ enters human history and God becomes flesh, He graced flesh, and on the cross, He redeems the flesh. He restores the origins of our purity. This is what it means for Christ to grace us with His flesh. So, an attack on the unity of eros and agape, be it of the aforementioned animalistic kind, right? Remember that dialogue we had some three weeks ago where we were discussing that animal instinct, that instinct that says, keep holiness out of my sex, huh? <laughs> or that angelistic instinct, which is keep sex out of my holiness. This is a hijacking of the meaning, the deeper meaning between the unity of eros and agape. And it's ultimately what? It is an attack on the incarnation, on the unity of humanity and divinity. In many ways, and Christopher West draws us out, we are unmasking the precise goal of the enemy. Okay, Satan seeks any and every means to deny that Christ has come in the flesh. Denying the unity of Eros and Agape is, as Christopher West puts it, one hell of a way to do it, simply put. Sexual relations, those vital relations fundamental to human existence, as Benedict puts it, become detached from Christianity precisely in the measure that we detach erotic love from divine love. In this same measure, we could say, Christianity becomes decisively cut off from the complex fabric of human life, and really ceases to be Christianity. It becomes something we might dabble in on Sunday morning, but has little or nothing to say to us during the rest of the week. You know, how many of us have heard that phrase or have used the phrase, keep God out of the bedroom? This is a widespread sentiment, or keep sex out of the church. Another common complaint of people in the pews. In light of what we are talking about right now, theology of the body, we should begin to see this in a different way. Theology of the body, that is, the way in which God has created us male and female, and in that unity we begin to reflect the deeper truths concerning God's love, this becomes a prism, a prism from which to better understand Christianity as a whole, and ultimately our vocation. I mean, if you think about it, if God is love, then what is sex if we block God out of it? It can't be love, right? And if sex is a great mystery that refers to Christ and the church, which we have discussed a great deal, then what is the church if we block sex out of it? It can't be the church of the incarnate Christ. The challenge that Benedict XVI gives us is this. 
we have to integrate eros and agape. We have to see one in light of the other, that there is actually a divine plan written in our very bodies. And that plan is realized when it opens itself up to the divine. In light of this, Christopher West turns to Benedict Sixteenth. Uh, this excerpt 29 here, this is again Benedict Sixteenth. Eros and agape can never be completely separated. The more the two, in their different aspects, find a proper unity in the one reality of love, the more the true nature of love in general is realized. As Eros matures, it is concerned more and more with the Beloved, bestows itself and wants to be there for the other. The element of agape thus enters into this love, otherwise Eros is impoverished and even loses its own nature. Okay, what is going on here? The more the human dimension of love opens to the divine dimension of love, that is eros to agape, the more we experience, the more we encounter the true nature of love in its unity and integrity. That is, we could say, we experience love as it was meant to be from the very beginning. This is what I was talking about earlier. Christ restores us to our original purity. When Eros refuses to open itself to the divine dimension of love, to that deep concern for the other, even to the point of laying down one's life, what happens? Well, what does Benedict XVI say? It loses its own nature. The nature of Eros is to lead man and woman to that total and irrevocable gift of self to and for the other, and to and for the offspring that might result from that mutual surrender. Remember that the sexual urge is that raw material for the more authentic love to develop. One of the ways in which this happens, right, is, of course, to have children, right? Because when you have children, you are called to give more, huh? You are called to give more of yourself. You know, I have four kids, and each additional child, uh, what I have discovered is the call to go deeper in my own relationship with God, the call to understand that sacrifice is absolute. It is not conditioned. Again, there's a reason why I talked about the nature of God's love in the opening. God's love that is unchanging, absolute, is sacrificial. It is not conditioned, right? It is not measured. It is not calculated. It simply says, I love, and to love is to give. And when you have children, you are not only giving life to the world, but at the same time being called to love that life. And in loving that life, you will find yourself going deeper. And it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but it is very fulfilling. You know, I was on about four or five months ago with one Mary Jean Burchard, and she was talking about motherhood, and she has four kids, and I thought she had a great line. You know, she was walking uh, through the store. Another woman had come up to her, and that woman said to her, you know, and looking at her four children, well, you must have your hands full. And her response was beautiful. Yes, and my heart is full too. 
Yes, and my heart is full too. How beautiful is that? To understand that in loving your children, you are learning the language of God more and more. And that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, all that being said, (laughs) when Eros is cut off from divine love, it is not concerned for the other or for the offspring, but for itself and its own satisfaction. It does not want to bestow itself or be there for the other, but only to please itself, even if that means abandoning the other. This is why for some, having children is a very frustrating thing. Because the more children you have, the less time you have for yourself. But that's the idea. This is why children are a gift to us. Children are a gift to us because it's more opportunity to enter into that divine love. And yes, it's very concrete. It's very practical. But what's on the other side of this sacrificial love is joy. Joy. Remember that overarching truth of the Christian Catholic faith. We receive God's grace in the sacramental life that we might share in God's very life, very goodness, very grace. And as I've noted before, grace and joy, they have the same root in the Greek. To live in God's grace is to live in his joy. This is why joy is that great spiritual fruit. If you live in his grace, the natural outgrowth to that grace is joy. We ought to begin to appreciate the importance of what we are talking about right now as it relates to uh, the gift of our children. Now, Bennett XVI spoke to this tragic impoverishment. What's going on here? You know, well, this tragic impoverishment of Eros ultimately can never satisfy the longings of the human heart, right? You know, what's interesting here. Christopher West poses the question, are men and women willing to pay the price of renunciation, sacrifice, and discipline required to find and live the love that satisfies? And ultimately, the answer to this question will determine the entire course of our personal life. So it is here. We turn to Benedict XVI, excerpt 30 here. He says, man cannot always give, he must also receive. Anyone who wishes to give love must also receive love as a gift. So here we are made to see that receptivity is the fundamental posture of every creature before the Creator. This is a towering theme of John Paul II's. We have nothing that we have not first received, huh? And this begins with our very existence. Love does not originate in us. It originates in God who is love. Hence, if we are to give love, what must happen? (laughs) We must first be open to receive it. We cannot give what we do not have. And this is so important in light of everything I have talked about up to this point. You know, before Christ gives us his new commandment to love as he has loved us, he first shows us the source of this love, right? The spring from which we can freely receive this love in order to give it to others. What does he say? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
Christ is the beloved of the Father, the one whom the Father has loved eternally. Christ is able to show us the love of the Father only because He, from all eternity, has received it, abided in it. In turn, only after inviting us to abide in His love, does Jesus do what? Does He command us to love one another as I have loved you? Remember when we talked about the Trinity within the context of love given, love received, love shared. The love received is the Son. And in light of this, He commands us to love one another as I have loved you. This is the great agape moment. This is the great sacrificial moment. This is what we draw from. When we have received this love, we are now able to live in this love and share this love. This is the wonder and the beauty of what the crucifix teaches us. You know, whoever looks at the demands of the gospel and concludes that he is not capable of living them, that person is correct. You know, we either throw in the towel, uh, we water down the gospel's demands, or, or, We cry out to God for the grace to do what we cannot do on our own. Those first two options are very close to all of us on some level. The problem is, if we abide in those options, we cut ourselves off from the gospel. It is the third option. It is the crying out to God. It is the cry of the heart to God to to supply what we lack that in the end opens us up to the faith and makes us receptive to the gift of divine love. And what is its impact? We now begin to see our relationships change. We now begin to see the way in which we interact with one another in a new way because we have been given the grace to see the grace of God. What makes the gospel the good news is that God supplies the grace for us to fulfill what He commands. It is not always a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just trying really hard to love. Because our fallen condition at some point, we will fail. But when we are weak is when we are strong. And what 2 Corinthians 12.10 wants to remind us is that Uh, self-sufficiency is more about being sufficiently selfless, and that selflessness always abides in God's grace. Always abides in God's grace. Yes, we do need to, at times, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we always do this with God's help. We love because He first loved us. And we can only give away this love if we have first received this love from God, who is love. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.